The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are so good to us. You are so good, and I'm thankful for Sunday mornings where we come together as your church family, as your people, and we lift your name on high, and we sing back to you what you have accomplished for us in the gospel, in sending your son to live the perfect life and die the death that we deserve to die. But with that, there's so much joy for us. There's a new life for us to be had. And, and so you call us into that through the liturgy, through faith and repentance, through, through the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word and through sacrament. And so I'm, I'm just thankful for this morning to be here with your people. And so I'm asking that your spirit would be here among us. I know your spirit is here already at work, moving far before, long before we were ever awake this morning, you were at work. And, um, and so we, we look to you um, I need your help this morning, Father, as I am a man who, who's weak. I, I, I don't have the answers. I don't have everything, and what I do have is very little. And so I, I, I'm calling out to you this morning for your Spirit's help to, to use me as your mouthpiece to proclaim, once again, the good news of what Christ has done for us through the Eighth Commandment. And would, the, would my thoughts be your thoughts and my words be from you? And would you um, care for and nurture and build up your church this morning through the reading and preaching of the word? 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, at Sacred City Church, our mission is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. That's what we've been saying since day one. That's what the mission of both congregations of Sacred City is. Make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. And one of the basic ways that we do that is by being good neighbors. Sounds simple, right? Make disciples, plant churches, renew the city through being good neighbors. Now, when we think like that and just sort of the idea of just being a good neighbor. What, what exactly does it mean to be a good neighbor? Right? Does it mean that I, I pull the, my neighbor's trash out for them when they forget? Or, or I refrained last night, refrained from calling the cops uh, at 1.30 in the morning when I was woken up by their shenanigans? Or uh, is, it, is it I don't, don't plink their uh, annoying dog with airsoft BBs right, when he's barking? What, what is the standard exactly for being a good neighbor? Right? Is, it, is it just a matter of being friendly and waving and smiling at them? Does that fulfill my commitment of being a good neighbor? Well, the, without getting into a ton of detail, the Ten Commandments actually lay some pretty concrete guidelines for what it looks like for us to be good neighbors. Um, and it just so happens we're in the middle of a sermon series going through the Ten Commandments one by one, one commandment each week, um, and while commandments one through four are direct, direct us in our relationship to God, commandments five through 10 really guide our relationships with others, where commandments five and seven begin at the home. They talk to our, our relationship with our parents um, and our spouse. Um, and, and really the idea behind commandments five and seven, are if, if you can't honor the people in your own home, there's no way that you can love and honor the person across your street. Where six command, the Sixth Commandment comes in, it's essentially good neighboring 101, right? Don't murder. Pretty basic. You can't be a good neighbor if you're plotting your neighbor's demise. Um, and, and then Commandments 8 through 10 sort of carry on this idea of what it looks like to be a good neighbor. And we're going to start with Commandment 8 and work our way through the rest. Uh, and, and as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, these, these last few commandments share a lot of similarities, really, um, but they're all kind of nuanced a little bit differently. So today we're going to look at an eighth commandment that is, you shall not steal. And this is one of those commandments that seems pretty straightforward, right? Pretty straightforward. I didn't have to spend a lot of time in my study this week getting to the bottom of this commandment and what the implications are here. It's uh, don't take other people's stuff, right? That's it. That sermon over, we could pray, maybe move on. But, but before we actually do that, um, there's actually more to this commandment than what initially meets the eye, similar to the other commandments that we have seen already. Um, behind these four words, there are profound implications that not only address what we do and what we don't do, but this commandment actually has a way of getting beneath the surface level, beneath the behavior and targeting our heart. In fact, this Commandment. as we unpack it, I, I hope to show you that it addresses some of the biggest fears and anxieties that we all face in our life. So we're going to unpack. So if you want to open up your Bible, you're going to look up the screen. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible probably at your feet. You can take that. That's our gift to you. You can take that home with you. And we will be at Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, four little words, you shall not steal. Actually, I probably, I beat you to the punch. You probably don't even have to turn there. I even, be, I even beat Tyler on this slide, so. You shall not steal. That's the text. Now, 
what exactly does it mean by stealing? We, we had a good, um, our, our profession of faith, the, the catechism kind of helped unpack that a little bit. But what exactly does the text mean by stealing? And the Hebrew word that is used here is ganaf, which means literally to carry something away stealthily or to take something in secret. Or in other words, it is to, to take something that doesn't belong to you without the consent of the rightful owner. Now, I want to caution us because when it, I think when it comes to some of these commandments, we have a tendency to distance ourselves from them. Say, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. And, and one of the ways that we do that is by kind of looking at the two extreme ends of the spectrum. Um, we either make stealing a huge criminal act or we make it a petty, juvenile act of mischief. So on the, on the big extreme, we look at stealing as if it's a big crime that only bank robbers and con artists commit, right? The guys who make millions and millions of dollars by embezzling money, by creating elaborate Ponzi schemes. And, and we, look, we look at what they do and say, oh, yeah, that's certainly stealing, right? Those guys deserve to be punished. They need to do some time. And then we say, well, well I'm not like them. I don't, I don't do that, so I, I kind of distance myself in that way. The other way is, is by looking at the small extreme of stealing. We look at it as a small, petty thing, right? A, a crime that is so small that it really doesn't matter. It's like when you're going through the grocery store and you walk past the loose candy bins and you grab a handful, you know? It's like, who, who doesn't do that, right? We reduce stealing to this sort of thing that everybody does, and you walk through the hand and you've got chocolate star remnants on your sweaty palms, so it's, anyway, it's, it's incriminating, But the thing is, this commandment covers a broad spectrum of theft, and most of it sits right in the middle of the spectrum. Things that ordinary people like you and me are capable of doing on a regular basis. And the scary thing is, it's, we're likely to not get caught. Rob, Rob Shinnick, he, he comments on this um, passage here, on this word here, and he says that ganaf stealing covers... All conventional types, types of theft, burglary, breaking into a home or a building to commit theft, robbery, taking property directly from another using violence or intimidation, larency, taking something without permission and not returning it, hijacking, using force to take goods or in transit or seizing control of a bus, truck, plane, etc., shoplifting, taking items from a store during business hours without paying for them, and pickpocketing and purse snatching. The term ganaf also covers a wide range of uh, exotic and complex thefts, such as embezzlement or the fraudulent uh, act of taking money or other goods entrusted to someone's care. There is extortion, getting money from someone by means of threats or misuse of authority and racketeering, obtaining money by any illegal means. This is all falls under the category of stealing. And while this is a long list, it's only a partial list because there are other forms of stealing that are equally dishonest. Right? Tis the season for taxes, right? Where we're tempted to maybe fudge some numbers to, to get a bigger return than we ought to or avoid paying what we ought to pay. There's a temptation to falsify uh, Social Security or, or any disability claims that we might make. There's, a, there's even uh, the temptation for us to steal from work by wasting time with idleness or not giving our employer what they pay us to do. 
But not only are there examples of, of stealing that happen on individual levels, there's corporate examples of stealing and theft that happen as well. Government wastes public money on frivolous things. In fact, the more the government accrues national debt, it's as if they're robbing the future citizens. Employers demand longer hours than the contract has laid out. Corporations like Enron and big companies that have fallen steal from the general public by falsifying their financials. Even still, this list is not exhaustive. There are countless ways of stealing because stealing is not just stealing, okay? We, we need to understand that stealing is not just taking something because the wickedness of our heart is surprisingly creative in how we go about taking things that don't actually belong to us. Luther says that we break the eighth commandment whenever we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in a loss to him. See, stealing is a creative, a sinfully creative endeavor. But the bottom line of stealing is this, that stealing is obtaining anything by taking shortcuts. Stealing is obtaining anything by taking shortcuts. It's avoiding the hard work to dishonestly get what you want. Now, if you think back to the fourth commandment, right, the the commandment about the Sabbath, six days you shall work, on the seventh you take a Sabbath to the Lord. This commandment includes both work and rest. The Christian life is marked by work and rest. And what we see, I I hope if you recall, we saw that, that work is a good thing that God gave us to do. And we are to benefit from our efforts of work. Terence Freedom is a commentator on, on, on this, and he says that God dignifies human beings by giving them work to do, from which they can expect to receive some of the fruits of their labor. This is central to God's creational intentions for humankind. So, so it's by our hard work that, are, that we are to make an honest living, support our families, contribute to the mission of the church, and to bless others. But the reality is, is work is hard, right? When sin entered the world, it brought with it a whole slew of complexity and toils and pains. See, before the fall, work was incredibly rewarding for Adam and Eve. They enjoyed being out in the garden, tilling, working hard. It was rewarding. It was fulfilling. It was untainted delight for them. But as soon as sin entered the world, their work became hard, The ground was cursed. Genesis 3.19, God tells Adam, he says, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat. Now, whether or not Adam was sweating before the fall, I don't know. But but now there's this this idea, the ground is cursed. You have to work hard. You have to labor. And the ground is, is riddled with thorns and thistles and rocks and pains that make your job difficult. Now, it's still enjoy, you can still enjoy your work, but it's, it's, there's a new nuance to it. It's, it's challenging. It's, mixed, it's delight mixed with struggle. Now, given the reality of this fallen condition, that work is now hard for us, stealing is a shortcut around hard work. See, stealing is a fallen response to the fallen condition that we live in. What this tells us is that stealing is a sin, at least, at least it's a temptation that everyone struggles with because we're all on the same playing field. Everyone's work is hard and challenging. And since we are fallen people within a fallen society, the temptation there for us to steal is there for everyone. Now, 
Stealing isn't just a juvenile activity that rebellious kids do. It's not just a way uh, to act out and to seek a thrill or attention, though that is how I have stumbled across my fair share of fast food trays in my day. Um, The temptation to steal entices all of us. The idea of a shortcut, of getting around the hard work, is something that, you know, I, I take that, right? Less work, more reward. If we think about it, everyone has a little bit of kleptomaniac in them. It's that inner impulse to shortcut. Now, Luther, again, comments on this. He says, if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it's nothing but a vast, wide stable of great thieves. See, regardless of our age, regardless of our financial situation, our station in life, there's always this temptation in us to steal, to take that shortcut. This internal urge that says, you can get this the easy way. And when we think about it, if, if we're actually sensitive to that impulse that we have, it's a little bit humiliating. It's kind of embarrassing. Because even if, even if we are older, we're more mature now. We're in a, a place where we're financially stable. Our season of life is, is comfortable. There's still that impulse. Now, I've been wrestling with this impulse the last couple of weeks, um, Like I said, it's tax season. Um, Last week, my CPA emailed me and said, hey, we finished up your your tax returns. Good news. Things were looking good for the Schmidt household this year. 2016 was going to be awesome. You know, I was thinking I can pay off some car debt, um, do some home improvement projects, maybe get my wife a nice little present. I got all all the things divvied up here. This is good. I might even buy you guys all iPads or something. Get rid of the Bibles, pull an Oprah. You know, things, things were looking good, right? And, and I was excited. And then about an hour later, I get an email that says, hey, um, by the way, we went back and reviewed your taxes from previous years. It looks like you need to amend 2014 and 2015. And it looks like your tax return is going to get cut significantly. And I was like, who dis? You got the wrong number. <laughs> I was like, I asked, I was like, okay, uh, what, what exactly is my legal responsibility here? Because I do not want to give them money back. Right? I knew what, I knew, I knew what was right. I knew it was the right thing to do. But still, this inward pull in me says, take the shortcut, keep it. You know, and then on top of that, I'm wrestling with this last week, and then I realize that this next commandment that I have to preach on is the eighth commandment, and then I realize I can't preach the eighth commandment with good conscience and tell you, well, and at the same time, ignore what my responsibility is here. But I share all that to, to just say that I, as your pastor, struggle with this, that inner impulse to take the shortcut to take the easy way around the hard work, right? That temptation is there. And, and I think we all feel it, that, that inward, we know what's right, but we just don't want to do it. But not only is a temptation there, but it seems as if the justifications are there as well, right? We could argue for it in our head and why we would be dishonest. 
And I think it's good to kind of lay out some of these common justifications because they should serve as sort of flags, indicator flags that fly up. When we're making these justifications, it should say, hey, you're on the verge of breaking the Eighth Commandment. And I think, some, I think the three most popular ones here, these justifications, first one is, I deserve this. I deserve this. I worked hard. I deserve this. The thing with this is it, it, it's, it's basically a glorified sense of entitlement. Because if you actually did deserve it, you wouldn't have to be making that argument. It'd already be yours. The other one is, it seems kind of childish, but others are doing it, right? Well, I could say, I could say Mr. Trump, who knows what he's been doing with his taxes, right? But with that, we're just, Riding with the wave, right? We're not doing the right thing. We're not following our conscience. We are letting others sort of drive. The third one is is this, especially with stealing, is that well, no one's getting hurt. There's it's it's sort of a a victimless crime, right? I I can get what I want, and really nobody else is getting hurt. And I, I think that was probably my response to my my situation. But when we look at it, and, and when we really kind of make our way through here, it, we see that that's not true at all, that there is actually quite a bit of hurt that's done in stealing. And so I want to take us deeper into the mechanics of stealing because what's going on here with this commandment is more profound than just taking something that's not ours. It's not just a matter of justifying. It's not just a matter of, of being tempted in this way. There's a deep heart issue exposing some of our biggest fears, Specifically, this is the fear, I think, the motivating fear that would cause us to break the Eighth Commandment is that I won't have what I need. Or in other words, that God won't provide for me. See, at at the heart of stealing is a fear or a distrust in God's provision for our lives. See, when we hear verses like Philippians 4.19, which says, God will meet all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, it sounds nice. It sounds like a good promise, but there is distrust. We're skeptical that God would actually be so mindful of us. Would God actually provide for me and what I need? Now, this, this is not an experience that's just limited to our time and what we go through. This is something that people all throughout history have dealt with. We can even look back to see the same sort of skepticism with Israel as God was providing for them in the wilderness. Remember, they were hungry. They were thirsty. God provided water from a rock. God provided quail to come and to give them meat to eat. And and then one of the significant things was God provided manna, bread that came down from heaven every morning for them to eat. See, and what God did with this manna was he told them to take a certain portion for each person at the beginning of each day. He said, don't, don't take any more than what you need. And some did. Some obeyed, and they, they followed what God laid out. But there were others who had this skepticism. And we're told in Exodus that, that they, they gathered more than what they need because they were afraid that maybe the manna won't come tomorrow. Maybe the bread won't come tomorrow. Maybe God won't provide for us like he provided for us today. And so in distrust and in skepticism, they stockpile their bread, and what happens is that the bread spoils. It goes bad. It doesn't actually get them to the next day. 
And what's going on here is this, this underlying conversation in the heart that says, well, I, I trust God for today, right? I've got manna here in my hand. My bank account is full for today, but I don't know if God will provide for me tomorrow. So I have to take things into my own hands. See, this is when we start to steal or the temptation to steal comes. It's desire to take shortcuts and to get what doesn't actually belong to us. And this underlying fear, right, this fear, will God actually provide for me, is what drives us to steal from others. But ironically, this fear not only produces fear, uh, this, this, this fear only produces more fear, because while our fear is leading us to steal, our neighbor is now afraid that I'm going to steal from them. Right? And, and so the cycle continues where now I too am afraid that my neighbor is going to steal from me. It's a cyclical uh, rotation of fear. It's this idea that I don't have enough, so I need to steal. I need to take what's not mine. But at the same time, what I do have, I need to protect from other people stealing that. And, and this cycle destroys communities and ruins relationships. See, if you've been stolen from, you know the feeling of being violated, right? The sense of comfort being destroyed. If you've walked out to your car um, in the morning and you've seen that maybe your window has been broken or, or somebody has gone through your glove compartment or your center console, you, there's a sense of violation. People have been in your space without your permission. It's off-putting, Right? And for some people, it's off-putting enough that maybe it's time to find a new neighborhood or get a bigger dog or get, get a new security system. But even the idea of theft is disheartening. Right? You, don't, you don't just need to be robbed in order for it to provoke fear. The idea that there's a thief in your midst might cause a great deal of fear. In fact, if I were to say there was a thief in this room, everybody instantly becomes suspicious. You're shifting your weight over your wallet kicking your purse under your seat, trying to remember if you locked your car doors. See, nothing destroys community quicker than a thief because stealing destroys trust by invoking fear. See, this is why we lock everything up. This is why the home security industry is a $45 billion industry. People are afraid that their stuff's gonna get taken. And I would speculate that most of this industry is driven by fear. Here's the thing. I say say thieving, stealing destroys community because it's hard to be a good neighbor when you're concerned about your stuff. When you're always looking out to protect what's yours or even even if if you do have a, a mindset where you're trying to get more You're always focused on stuff, looking over your shoulder, neglecting the real needs of your neighbor. But these fears that we have don't just limit us to sinning against our neighbors. It also leads us to rob God. In fact, most of us are probably more willing to rob God, to steal from God, than we are our neighbor. Right? That, that's a little alarming. And you think, well, how, how do I rob God? 
What does that mean? Well, the prophet Malachi addresses this with the Israelite people in Malachi 3, um, chapter 3. And then this is the Lord speaking. He says, in your tithes and contributions. They're asking, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we rob God? He says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying, trust me here. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more needed. See, what's going on here is Israelite people, we do it the same way. We rob God by not being generous with our tithes and our offerings. Now, a, a tithe is um, 10%. That's the biblical standard for generosity. But if you're here doing the math in your head, I don't want you to get too tripped up on this because what God is really after here is a generous heart, not a percentage. See, what's going on here with the people of Israel is they're not being generous back to God who has already given them everything that they have. See, I think that when we, when we look at giving back to God, it's easy for us to say, well, this is mine. I earned this. I, I, I deserve this, right? Again, justifying. But really, when you think about it, who is it that gave you the energy to get out of bed, to go to work, to punch the clock? Who, who gave you the health to do what you need to do to make your paycheck? Who gave you the skill set, the upbringing, and the circumstances to get you to this station in life? It's just God. God's provision, which led to your provision. And so God asks for his people as a a sign of faith and trust in him to give back what God has given, just a small percent. See, to not be generous with a tithe or, or, or offering is to say that your agenda in life is more important than God's. Right? That car, that lifestyle, that whatever is more important than the mission of God moving forward. That the, the message of the gospel would be taken out, that people would hear the good news of Christ, that they would put their trust in him, and the church would grow. The kingdom of God would expand. Now, while this passage in Malachi is definitely a rebuke to some, it's also an invitation to blessing See, God says that in, in, in their generosity toward God and giving back to God, that God would open up the windows of heaven and bless his people like crazy until there is no more need among the people. That sounds like a pretty good invitation. Now, I realize that, that I'm... The tithing, giving, being generous might be hard for you. It doesn't make sense on paper. Maybe you're in a season of life where things are tight. But this passage invites us into obedience to find even more blessing, to find how God can provide for you in ways that are bigger than just a paycheck, to provide for you in the midst of community provide for you in ways that you didn't even know. God had resources at his fingertips. 
So that's one way that we rob God. We, we are stingy. We are not generous people in giving back to him. But another way that we're not generous or not the way that we're robbing from God is by taking our breath, by taking our gifts and not giving them back to him. See, when we don't use our gifts, when we don't use our talents and time for kingdom purposes, we are robbing from God. See, he's given us these gifts so that we could advance the gospel. And to be stingy with these gifts, our time, our resources, our talents, is essentially the same thing as not tithing, right? It's saying that my agenda is more important than the mission of God moving forward. And, and here, I'm not, what, I'm, what I'm appealing for here is not just a matter of getting more involved with ministries, Right? Though I hope you are serving in the church and you're, 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 you're contributing to the body in various ways, what I'm talking about here is the way that we use our energy on mission and in community in our everyday rhythms. At the end of the day, when you get a phone call from someone in your MC who's maybe struggling, you know that they're going through a tough time, and it would be so much easier just to set your phone on the countertop or, 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 or whatever and sort of just ignore what's going on with them, but it takes energy to enter into that mess, to care for them, to minister to them. It takes energy and time and resources to live on mission, right? Whether that be sharing your, um, sharing your fine brew collection with a neighbor, right? Inviting them over, spending time doing regular activities. This is part of giving back to God, See, there are all, all kinds of ways that we are, we are robbing God, robbing our neighbor. And maybe your eyes have been opened to some of the ways that you're breaking the Eighth Commandment. And, and, and the way forward, you have essentially three options here. The first option is to ignore it. Right? Don't repent. Just keep doing what you're doing. Be a thief. Give in to the fear, promote the fear, destroy community, look out for you, right? This is essentially the way of the world. And you might get by, but it'll eventually destroy everything that you have. Your sin will find you out. See, you do this and the windows of heaven will be closed to you. You miss out on blessing. Now, the second option, it's a little bit better, Repent, but live out by your good works. Resolve to never, ever steal again. Only receive what you have earned. Be precise with your tithes. Meet the minimum requirements. Give a certain amount of time. Take only what is due to you. See, this is essentially to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps to live a better life. This is the religious thing to do here, right? But in doing this, sure, you won't steal anymore, maybe. Well, actually, you'll probably fail at that, I guarantee you. But in doing this, you'll miss out on grace. Now, the third option you have is to repent and live by faith. See, this is the gospel response when we see that we've broken the eighth commandment. It's to acknowledge our failures, to say, you know what? I am amongst the thieves. I am in that broad 
caravan of those who steal. But in acknowledging that, it also puts us before the throne of grace to receive what we don't deserve. See, it's, it's getting to do this, to repent and to live by faith means to get what we could never get on our own. And to do this, it means that we look to Jesus. See, Jesus didn't steal ever. He never gave in to the fear, the deep, under-rooted fear that God would not provide for him. He, he completely trusted that God would supply for all of his needs in seasons of plenty and seasons of poverty. Jesus never cut corners. Jesus never took shortcuts. And certainly he was tempted to do so, but he resisted sin perfectly. See, even when it came to redeeming his people back from their sins, Jesus was willing to put in the hard work. He was willing to pay the price. See, when he was out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry, Satan came to him and he promised all of the kingdoms of the world of Jesus would just bow down and worship him, right? Satan was promising him glory without paying the price of the cross. This was the shortcut. This was the way around. This was a chance for Jesus to steal his people back without the cross. And Jesus said, no. And by saying no, Jesus knew that the only way to get his people back was through the cross, by paying for their sins. He looked at their brokenness, the destruction. He saw the curse that was upon them. He said the way to break their fears was to go to the cross. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, tells the believers that you were bought with a price. That price was Christ's own blood, his own body broken and his blood shed. See, Jesus paid the ultimate price to give us what we could not accomplish by our good works. And what did he give us? What is it that we gain access to now? What, what is it that we couldn't have earned on our own? An inheritance in heaven. A treasure that cannot be defiled, destroyed, or diminished. And, and I think so many of us think of heaven as that treasure, but really the treasure is Christ himself. That Jesus gave us himself for all eternity. That he opened up the riches of heaven for us that we could not. The windows of heaven have been opened. His blessing pours out. Now if you want to be freed from the fear that compels you to steal. If you want to be freed from the fear of having your valued possessions taken from you. Then you need a better treasure one that cannot be stolen, one that doesn't fade away, one that doesn't get destroyed by moth or rust. And that treasure is Jesus. He is the truer, better treasure than money or possessions or things. You see, money and things will not love you like the way Jesus loves you. Money only demands from you more, more, more. It'll enslave you. It'll keep you bound in fear. But Jesus liberates us from our deepest fears. 
right? That fear, will God provide for me? See, what the gospel shows us, what the cross shows us is that God has provided for your deepest spiritual need in giving him himself. See, when Christ is your treasure, you don't need to take shortcuts. The temptation to, 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 to take the easy way sort of vanishes when you see the beauty and the glory and the riches of what Christ offers us. So we see this in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You're probably familiar with Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed up the sycamore tree. Zacchaeus was a thief. He was a good thief, very rich, we're told. Scripture tells us he's very wealthy. And he, he made his money by stealing from people. And one day Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. He befriends Zacchaeus. And it's in that relationship where Zacchaeus' eyes are opened, right? The thief finds a greater treasure. So much so that that Zacchaeus' response to encountering Jesus, the treasure that he has in this, this Savior, that he's willing to pay back fourfold everything that he's ever taken. See, this, that is a heart that has experienced the gospel. A heart that has found a greater treasure. A heart that isn't phased by money or things. A heart that's so satisfied in the love of Christ. Father, I pray that, that we would be people who are deeply satisfied in the treasure of Jesus. In a world that is pushing things, we are viewed as consumers that we just need to consume, consume, take and take, stockpile, stockpile. I pray that, that the gospel, that, that Jesus would fulfill us in a way that, that allows us to shed that. That we would be people who are marked by deep satisfaction, a deep joy, people who are who are known for our radical generosity, both to, to, to you and the way that we work unto the Lord and in the way that we bless our neighbors. Father, I know that anything that is not provoked um, or, or produced by a gospel encounter with, with a real encounter of Jesus and, and, the, and his beauty and what he offers us and the fullness and richness of, of himself it is sort of false. It'll, it'll eventually fade away and we'll go right back to our sinful ways of stockpiling and taking. But I'm asking that your spirit would work deep in our hearts to, to make us a certain kind of people, people who are freed from our fears, to know that you have provided the most intimate and most profound thing that we need in life. And we would trust in you and salvation for life and for godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.